0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the policies, technologies, and collective action needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Today's episode is about Deep Sky, a new carbon removal startup that made a big splash in 2023, including a $75 million Series A financing. Deep Sky fashions itself as a carbon removal project developer partnering with carbon removal technology developers around the world to trial their solutions in Quebec and plan to rapidly scale the solutions that work and share as much information as they can along the way. I've got to say, I really like that model. It's way overdue. We need to start deploying CDR in a way that is not tied to one specific technology or IP. We need to try a wide variety of technologies, set aside what doesn't work, and rapidly scale up what does. It's the reason I'm advocating for a technology-agnostic CDR innovation challenge in Canada. One that helps promising pilots rapidly achieve commercial scale while building a valuable public knowledge base that will help the next phase of scaling. It's the epitome of a shots-on-goal approach to scaling up CDR. In my conversation today with one of DeepSky's earliest hires, we cover a broad range of what DeepSky has done to date, and we get a few hints of what's in store for the rest of 2024. You'll notice we don't exactly see eye to eye on a few things like how we think about UN climate models, but honestly, I don't think that really makes a difference to the work directly in front of us. At the end of the day, we need to start building CDR capacity now. A recent paper by Greg Nemet and others highlight that CDR technologies are in their formative stage, and technologies at this level take years to mature and reach saturation levels before they're really ready for widespread commercial scale. Given that lag time, we absolutely need to get started building that CDR capacity now. And the team at Deep Sky is putting an unprecedented level of talent, investment, and ambition towards that imperative. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast at carboncurve.substack.com or through your favorite podcast app. Okay, let's get started. My guest today is Phil DeLuna. Phil is Chief Carbon Scientist and Head of Engineering at Deep Sky, a carbon removal venture building a large-scale infrastructure to remove CO2 from the atmosphere to reverse climate change. Prior to Deep Sky, Phil led Carbon Tech at McKinsey & Company's Sustainability Practice. He is a Governor General Gold Medal winning scientist ranked in the top 0.1% in the world in his field, a mentor at Creative Destruction Lab, and a Chair of Carbon Management Canada. Phil was the youngest ever director at the National Research Council, where he built and led a $57 million R&D program developing disruptive technologies to decarbonize Canada. He was on the founding team of CERT Technologies, a carbon tech startup and finalist in the $20 million Carbon X Prize. He is a member of the College of Royal Society of Canada, an adjunct professor of materials science and engineering at the University of Toronto, a former member of parliament candidate, a Globe and Mail top 50 changemaker, and a Forbes top 30 under 30. DeepSky is the world's first carbon removal project developer, deploying the best carbon capture technology from around the world under one roof. Tech agnostic, DeepSky brings together the most promising direct air and ocean capture technologies from around the world. Powered by renewable energy, DeepSky's facilities are strategically located in Quebec, a region with an abundance of hydroelectric power, immense wind power potential, and a vast territory with the rich geological makeup required for carbon storage. DeepSky will bring the largest supply of high-quality carbon credits to the market and commercialize carbon removal and storage solutions like never before. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you
1: so much for having me.
0: Um really thrilled to have you on the on the podcast. I know we've been thinking about doing this for a while now. You have such an impressive background. I'd love for you to be able to share a little bit more about your journey into the carbon dioxide removal world and why you decided to join DeepSky.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, I've been working in carbon tech Since the beginning of my educational journey, I did my master's in carbon capture materials, metal organic frameworks at the University of Ottawa. And then I did some PhD research on electrochemical CO2 conversion at the University of Toronto. And, you know, I'd always been inspired and by trying to solve really tough questions and problems. And there's no bigger problem in my view than climate change and chemistry and material science is my avenue is my tool to kind of try and solve that. So throughout my my career journey, you know, I, I was at the University of Toronto, spun out a small company, competed in the Carbon X prize, scaled up a reactor from a little Rubik's Cube size box to a shipping container sized pilot plant that we deployed at a natural gas combined cycle power plant in Alberta. Left that and then I joined the National Research Council of Canada where I was a director and I led a program focused on CO2 conversion hydrogen production and artificial intelligence for materials discovery. Uh, Over the course of three years, built that program up to 40 projects across four countries, uh, Canada, the United States, uh, the UK, and Germany. But if I'm going to be frank, I was a little bit frustrated by the pace of government. Towards the end of it, it can move a little bit slowly. So I decided to pivot, go to the private sector, join McKinsey. had a blast, incredible colleagues, learned a lot about the private sector and all these large Industrial corporate companies that were trying to decarbonize um, everything from pension funds that needed help with setting their interim targets to large oil and gas companies that um, were thinking about carbon capture but weren't sure what it meant and how to do it um, to airlines that were thinking about state of aviation fuel. But you know, if I was going to be honest with you, I I, I was longing for more uh, of ownership and more doing things rather than just advising others. So the way that I met Deep Sky, I was actually thinking of starting my own uh, carbon tech company, um, my own CDR company. And I was at the University of Toronto because I'm an adjunct professor there. Uh, there's a, a colleague of mine, Professor Dave Sinton, who I'd worked with in the past. And he was developing new technology in his lab to do CDR. I was in early conversations, stealth conversations with him on licensing that tech from the university and starting a company. And in that process, you try to find investors, you try to find whoever uh, I met Fred and Yost, and I thought, you know, they were going to pre-purchase my first pilot, fund my startup, and then be off to the races. And instead, they said, "Phil, um, come join our company." I was the fourth hire at Deep Sky, um, first technical hire, and they said, "You know, we're going to teach you how to build billion-dollar businesses because they built Hopper, which is you know five billion-dollar tech company. Um, You're going to teach us about the science. It's the worst venture capital market um, since forever." Rather than spending the next two years of your life trying to find money, we've already got it. And if you still want to go start a company in a few years, we'll support you. So I thought, you know, these are incredible visionary leaders. Deep Sky sounds like an incredible visionary company. And to be honest with you, I did not think that I could do the job that I'm doing now unless I started my own company. And to have found this position, to found Deep Sky and work with such incredible colleagues, um, it's a dream come true, but it also feels like I was literally made for this role.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it too. And I also hope that other carbon removal idea or solution that you're working on uh, gets off the ground as well. We can have the best of both worlds. What's so unique about Deep Sky as a company? It's its focus on scaling infrastructure to reverse climate change, not just any one solution or any one technology. Can you tell us a little bit more about the founding story? of the company and the team as kind of the fourth higher year, like really early on in this thing, and what your philosophy is when it comes to removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So the story of Deep Sky begins with our co-founders, Fred Lalonde and Yost Overkirk. They co-founded a company many years ago called Hopper. It's the second largest tech company, privately held tech company in Canada, and uh, they're a competitor to Expedia. They sell travel. A few years ago, they started offsetting the emissions of their customers by planting trees. I think they planted over 30 million trees over three years. They thought they were doing a really great job. They went to go do PR about it. And climate journalists and activists said that they were greenwashing. And so that forced them to to look into this a little bit further. And they realized two things. First is that the IPCC models are likely conservative estimates for a few reasons. One, they don't take into account the temperature rise that could occur if a tipping point was reached. They tell you about at least 12 different tipping points that will happen at certain points of emission and temperature, but it's a complete uncertainty on what happens after that. And if anything, you can make the argument that these tipping points are happening right now. And also, all of the real world warming that we've been experiencing, especially this year, are far greater than any of the uh, projections that IPCC or anyone else had predicted. So clearly, the, the models are wrong. And the second thing they realized is that planting trees, while incredibly important and has lots of co-benefits for local biodiversity, for the environment, for communities, for watershed um, preservation, for all of these reasons, it's not enough for emissions reductions and removals. We actually have to remove carbon dioxide from our air and our ocean in order to reverse climate change. And our, our hypothesis is that we need to remove every time that has been historically emitted, because there is a delay and a lag. And the way that I describe this is, um, think about COVID and uh, uh, lagging indicators. Uh, there's many similarities, actually, between pandemics and climate change, both of which know no borders. If uh, one country is impacted very quickly, every country will be impacted, and both of which have lagging indicators. Just like death is a lagging indicator of infection, Um Temperature rise is a lagging indicator of emission. The only difference is one is a couple of weeks, the other one is 10 to 50 years. So even if we were to completely stop emissions today, turn everything off, use horses and farm for our food uh, and hunt and gather, we would still have 10 to 50 years of baked in warming going forward. This is what's called pipeline emission or pipeline warming. So the there's, this, is, this sets up the need for carbon removals. And then um, our our co-founder said, okay, if we look at the space right now, you have all these amazing technology companies that are trying different chemistries, but they all run to the same wall. They don't have access to renewables. They don't know where to put the CO2 once they've captured it. Clearly there's a market deficiency here. And then they looked at other industries, solar, wind, et cetera. In every other energy or infrastructure sector, you have project developers and you have technology developers. Panasonic built solar cells. Bullfrog Energy built solar projects. They are fundamentally different skill sets, different businesses. And carbon removals didn't have that. Why should it be any different? And so DeepSky was born to be a technology agnostic project developer that does not own IP, does not develop any of its own technology, but rather focuses on the really hard stuff that a lot of these technology developers don't necessarily have the time or, fo- or ability to focus on, or the skill set to, because they need to be focused one hundred percent on building the technology and making it work. So things like transportation, infrastructure, permitting, labor, policy, political engagement—all of these things, that, which are very local in nature—that's what Deep Sky is is building. And really, the reason we think this is such a differentiated and effective approach is because it helps to de-risk the technology by. Having a more diversified portfolio of technologies. Right now, in the capture space, you have solid sorbents, liquid sorbents, electrochemical swing, pH swing, moisture swing. There's all these different ways to take CO2 out of the air. And from a first principles perspective, why would you make a bet on only, only just one of them if you don't know how they work at scale? And that's exactly why Deep Sky has decided to try them all, uh, literally, try before we buy. Uh, and we're building a uh, a site uh, a, a testing and validation center called Deep Sky Alpha where we're going to do exactly that
0: okay that's great there's a lot there and i want to start with something that you said that i think makes a ton of sense and i i'm so glad that Deep Sky exists in this fashion there has not been a project developer model within carbon removal until very recently and early on when we were kind of uh, thinking about modularity and the role of modularity has to play, it's not just within the technology itself, but in how we actually deploy projects in that we need to specialize across the value chain where the project developers are not the technology developers. I think that's critical to scaling carbon removal. So I love this project developer model. I think we need to see it. The companies that build, like you said, solar panels are not the ones building solar farms. These are very different sets of expertise and I'm glad that we are finally starting to kind of shift away from this idea that technology developers are the ones that are deploying the projects. I think we're going to move to a place where the deep sky model around project development is the right, right way to go. There's also a couple of things I want to hang on to there uh, that you said. Number one, the models are wrong. Number two, we need to remove every ton of CO2. Um, the models so far have been surprisingly accurate but i i you know that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the case going forward um, but that's a big claim to make the, the the ipcc models and the climate scientists are effectively wrong in what and what they're projecting the impact of of climate change is going to look like from a temperature point of view uh, and that we need to remove every ton of co2 i would love to remove every ton of co2 by when do we need to do that because when we think about what uh, what other experts in the field are saying or what we need to do on carbon removal there's an urgent need to remove co2 from the atmosphere to get to net zero and then to go net negative that's for me like foundational what i haven't heard is every ton of excess co2 since the beginning of the industrial revolution needs to be removed i get it by when
1: yeah so love that and uh, let me clarify what I, it, it is a, it is a flashy statement to go out there and say ipcc models are wrong right and uh, I want to correlate that, but, you know, being a scientist myself. Uh, science really is about putting forward hypotheses, data, and understanding and adjusting them as time goes on. And IPCC has done a really good job of doing that. When I, see, when I say the IPCC models are wrong, what I mean to say is the IPCC models are conservative estimates based on, and this is true for any projection in the world, right? Humans are terrible at projecting into the future and figuring out, uh, exponential growth, runaway change, et cetera. Uh, and not to say that the IPCC models are fundamentally flawed or wrong, simply that when you look at the IPCC as an organization, it is a complex international organization that publishes data and reports by consensus. And uh, if are there are any scientists listening to this, they'll know that it's extremely difficult to get consensus among the scientific community so would i say that the ipcc models fundamentally are wrong of course not they're not they're like i don't that's a dangerous thread to pull on would i say that and i worry very significantly that they underestimate what the real warming is going to be and that in fact this year alone has shown um anomalies in the data yeah of course and I, if we just look at historical records in the sense of um, emissions and temperature, the last time the world had a, a carbon dioxide emissions concentration in the atmosphere of greater than 400 parts per million was 3 million years ago in the mid-Pliocene era. And the temperature of the world was plus 5 degrees Celsius. Now, that's not going to happen now because we didn't have the Antarctic ice sheet that we have now. And a lot of the warming back then was because you lacked the albedo effect of the sun rays and uh, the reflection of the sun via the uh, ice caps in the Antarctic Ocean. Well, what happens if the Antarctic ice sheets melt? And so this is what I mean when I say that these models don't take into account what happens after tipping points, because there is no scientific basis to do so. You can't model something where you're breaking a cycle. Um, and then and then, finally, on the point of having to remove every historical emission that humanity has ever emitted, to your point, by when? And I want to also preface this by saying the number one thing that we need to do first is reduce emissions. Well, that's the number one thing that we need to do. And the reason that, uh, unfortunately, I think deep sky even needs to exist is that we as a species are failing to reduce emissions fast enough. We're failing to electrify fast enough. We're failing to transition away from oil and gas fast enough. We're failing to find new ways to produce steel and cement and fertilizer and food fast enough. And every year that goes by that we don't do those things, it becomes increasingly important for carbon removal to exist. And because we're at such nation stages in this industry, something has to happen.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. And thank you for that that clarification. I think I get you a little bit better now. And I think the other thing that we don't, we don't recognize, even if, you know, we're not necessarily on the same boat around what the kind of potential temperature rise could look like, you know, this century, though, again, like you said, projections are flawed in so many ways. Last thing on this before we shift, because I want to learn and I want to spend a lot more time on, on just what you're doing, because I think that's, what's important. And I think to your point around urgency, by the way, the, the conversations that we have around, uh, the policies that are needed to scale carbon removal at Carbon Removal Canada is the need for urgent action. Because, like you said, there's an important point here around the nascency of the carbon removal field. You know, Professor Greg Nemet has done some really great research around just the need and for carbon removal technologies at their very nascent formative stages today, that if we don't start building and scaling this now, uh, forget whatever targets or numbers or whatever we're talking about. We're just not we're just not going to get anywhere unless we start building it today. Uh, so if, if you're one of those people who looks at carbon removal and says, hey, this is something that makes sense more in the back half of the century and we meet a lot of people like that, that's fine. It doesn't change the fact that we actually need to start building now, right? And so the kind of conversation around like kind of targets and and where do we need to get to in terms of the scale of CDR by 2050, we engage in that conversation and we need to kind of figure that out. But at the end of the day, The point is urgency in building, and that's what's been really cool about seeing Deep Sky's progress over the last little while. But if we're talking about a world that is uh, potentially going to look a lot worse, much faster than we think, why is something that is as slow and as expensive as carbon removal the answer? Why is that at the center of your theory of change?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, there's a business answer or more of like a practical operational answer. And then there's like a scientific answer for me. And again, this is my perspective on this, right? And obviously I'm biased. I've been working in this space for a long time. But if you think about it, just like pure thermodynamics and mass and energy balances, right? We took fossil fuels out of from under the ground, a form of carbon. We extracted energy from it through combustion. And then we took the, the carbon in that, whatever the byproduct was, and we put it into the atmosphere. So that's carbon underground into the air. Wouldn't it make sense, like just fundamentally, to reverse that? If our issue is that we're warming the world because we're putting carbon from underground into the air, then wouldn't it make sense fundamentally to take carbon dioxide out of the air and put it underground? So your point on you know um, it's going to take a long time. It's very expensive. It and I hear this all the time. I love this quote. I forget who said it, who told it to me, but. Uh, I think it's a, a famous author from a long time ago. Basically, you can judge the development of a technology on the views of their critics. Stage one is, that's never going to work. Stage two is, that's too expensive. And then stage three is, it was my idea the whole time. And if you look at solar, if you look at wind, if you look at nuclear, if you look at everything else, if you look at cell phones, if you were to go to someone in 1985, where they were walking around with a backpack and a receiver so they could have a call, or it was in their car, and you would say that in 20 years, we would have something that looks like a piece of glass in your hand. They would think you're crazy. So whenever people talk about, again, this is the whole thing about humans have a really hard time on projection and seeing what the world could be and what the future could hold and what the visions are. And often we rely on historical rather than what we think and can push for. What are the fundamental laws of physics that says X, Y, and Z? If we look at the thermodynamic um, fundamental energy requirements to separate CO2 from the air, they're not insane. The difficulty is efficiency. The difficulty is operational, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I I guess any response, any critique on, you know, this isn't worth doing because it's too expensive today, I I have a hard time accepting that, or a hard time justifying that to my own. Um, and maybe it's just because I'm a technologist at heart, but and an optimist. But if we took that approach with literally anything else ever, we would have never made progress as a species on anything.
0: Yeah, I I totally see that, and I think the approach that is one that is technology agnostic, I think, opens up the possibility for innovations that scale and that maybe push back against that carbon removal is expensive and slow by having as many shots on goal and trying so many different technologies and approaches. I think that's what's going to be key in in scaling carbon removal long term, because we don't know specifically which technology is going to scale and which is going to work. And so the more we leave ourselves open to those different innovations and solutions, uh, the better our chances. So let's get into let's get into what Deep Sky's been up to over the last little while.
1: Sure. So uh, we recently closed a seventy-five million dollar uh, Canadian, so it's about like fifty-five million dollars in real money Series A, um, and that Series A is uh, funding uh, the development of what we're calling Deep Sky Alpha, which is our testing and validation center where we can bring pilots of all of these different technologies into the same location, test them under the same conditions at the hottest day of the summer and the coldest day of the winter so that we can learn about how these technologies work, appropriately compare them apples to apples, provide benchmarking and information to the industry, and then help each of these technologies scale. The best technologies that we identify at Alpha, and we're going to commit to helping them scale and deploy commercial facilities in Canada. And that'll be Deep Sky, what we call Deep Sky 1 or 2 or 3 as our uh, a nomenclature for now. now. The, the other things that we've been doing, have been going around the world, visiting every single carbon tech company, carbon removal and CDR uh, company closed systems. So direct air capture, direct ocean capture, the, 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 the technologies where we can measure every molecule of CO2 so that we can have the most robust and most um, bulletproof MRV, which I know we're going to talk about in, uh, later in the conversation. Um, and then if we 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 go, we identify, we do due diligence, we have a conversation with these companies, I go visit them in person, and then we offer to either host their technology or to purchase their pilot. And the reason why we ourselves are not developing our own technology is because we want to be a resource uh, and a place, especially alpha, for everyone to benefit from and everyone to have access to, rather than trying to be competitive and own all of the IP ourselves, which we do not want to do. We ask for no exclusivity from any of our tech- technology partners. We ask for no IP, and if IP is generated through the process of Alpha, they all get to keep it. So that's what we're working on right now. We've um, scaled up to a team of about fifteen to twenty people. It's tough to know because we've hired folks, their start dates are not till uh, the new year. So um, it's it's just been it's been so much fun, and we've been talking to customers, partners, MRV players, and to and give you a sense of some of the technology companies we've announced partnerships with, you know, on the ocean side, we've announced partnerships with Captura, with Aquatic. on the air side, we've announced partnerships with Airhive, with Mission Zero, with uh, ReCarbon, uh, with Climeworks, and, and then we're also uh, partnering and working with uh, large corporates, which um, you'll hear more about in the new year. So it's been, it's been just a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. And it's we've seen so much great just news come pretty regularly over the last several months and all the great progress that you're making. I wish more people in the sector were moving at this pace. So let's talk about some of those partnerships. What are the criteria for choosing those partners and and how do these partnerships work?
1: Great question. So when we take a, a first principles perspective on how to identify which technologies we think can scale, There's a few layers. The first um, sort of screening criteria is, uh, can this technology be completely electrified? And the reason being is it allows us to uh, open up the scope of where we can deploy. There are many technologies that require uh, really high temperature heat. And that's fine if that heat can be found through electrified, like, for example, electrified calciners. But if a technology fundamentally needs to burn natural gas or it needs to be co-located next to an industrial heat source because they need access to that high uh, quality heat, then that limits our ability to deploy because it adds another uh, site selector metric that we have to uh, uh, solve for. We already have to solve for access to renewables and approximately to underground storage. If we have to include on top of that industrial point sources or industrial areas where we can get high temperature heat, that really limits where we're able to, to, to build these things. And DeepSky's vision for the future is we want to deploy projects like their data centers. All of the engineering is cookie cutter, and we take it and we put it right on top of where the storage is. We drill a hole, and then we uh, capture CO2 and we store it. So uh, first screening criteria, can it be electrified? Second, cre- second screening criteria is have they demonstrated or is there a pathway that we believe reasonable for them to get to low energy intensity? And the, the aspirational target that we always say is 1,000 kilowatt hours per ton of CO2 or below. To give you a sense, existing technologies today, that are the largest technologies that are commercial are between the three to 4,000 kilowatt hours per ton of CO2. So that's three to four times greater, or we're looking for a quarter reduction. And the reason why is because in the future, when everyone is competing for these green electrons, when everyone's driving around their Teslas or uh, using heat pumps to heat our homes or we're using the electricity which we should, to decarbonize as much of our economy as much as possible, there's going to be more and more competition for those electrons. So we need to find technologies that are as efficient as possible if we have any chance of scaling. The third thing we look for is manufacturability, and often that leads to modularity. Uh, I fundamentally believe, and there are others who think, you know, you can either size up or you can number up. Uh, I think that for shared balance of plant, things like, for example, air contactors, fans, uh, compression units, liquefaction, the things that look and feel like chemical plants. Okay, let's make them as big as possible. But for many of these tech companies, the core innovation is in the regeneration. And the, the way that we're going to scale up these regen units is by making them modular and mass manufacturable so that they can look more like Tesla supply chain and assembly lines than they do Um, Right now, which is all of these people building them in garages bespoke for the first time. No wonder it's going to cost so much money. If you were to take your car and then build it in a garage by hand, it would cost you $2 million. So we need to get down that manufacturability curve and we look for technologies that inherently allow that to happen. Um, The fourth thing is simplicity in operation and simplicity in doing one thing really well, which is removing carbon dioxide from the air. There are lots of technologies that, uh, and a lot of early stage companies they are like, oh, do I do utilization? Do I do storage? How do I store it, uh, et cetera. Um, some of them produce um, acid and some of them produce uh, other byproducts. Uh, we're looking for technologies that do one thing well because producing all of these other auxiliaries creates complexity from a project developer perspective on how do we find an offtake for those auxiliary products. If you need a bunch of different feedstocks, like complex biomass in order to uh, run your project, that also creates complexity for a project developer. And then finally, the fifth thing that we look at, uh, frankly, is team. And this is where Damien, our CEO, who spent uh, you know 20 years of his career in venture capital, um, really shines. You know, We are looking for people and for teams and for companies that want to work with us, that recognize what we're doing, that don't view us as a competitive threat because we're not that are willing to move fast and be creative and break things and, and to your point, scale quickly because we don't have a lot of time. Uh, And those are hard to find. If you go to uh, many of these companies and you ask them, okay, I'm gonna put in a purchase order for your pilot today, but in two years from now, I'm gonna come back and I want a purchase order for a 50,000 ton per year system or 50 reactors to service that capacity. Many of them, their faces go white because they haven't even thought of how they're going to manufacture these things at scale. So, to, to sum that up, can it be electrified? Is there a pathway to low energy intensity? Can it be mass manufactured? Is there simplicity in the supply chain? Um, does it do one thing really well, which is capture carbon dioxide from the air or the ocean? And is the team a team we believe can scale?
0: That's a really great set of type criteria. I'm glad to hear the focus on the modularity piece. There's been some really great research done around how critical a modular approach is going to be to drive carbon removal technologies down the cost curve. And we will need all types of carbon removal projects out in the world. Some industrial scale, not as modular, uh, that maybe benefit more from economies of scale. But the modularity approach, I think, lends itself really well to this learning by doing, which is going to be really important in getting, getting costs down, uh, especially for things like direct air capture, which kind of brings me to my next question. You guys have focused pretty closely on direct air capture and direct ocean capture or direct ocean removal technologies um, that that do require a lot of renewable energy. It sounds like you have kind of a plan for where you want to get to in terms of the energy requirement there. I'm also thinking a little bit about scalability here, right? Um, You're focused on closed systems approaches to carbon removal. We know that some of the open system stuff that's emerging potentially lower cost, potentially more scalable we know there's some uncertainty bars around how much CO2 is actually removed and, and stored away permanently. And we also know that there are some potential risks that we don't maybe don't understand quite as well, ecological or otherwise. But but I'm curious why there's been this focus on closed systems, given the importance of just like building and moving fast and scaling quickly.
1: I, I mean, I think you summarize it super well, right? Like with open systems, A lot of the questions and uncertainties on the error bars of, of, and it could be even something as simple as time. You know, when is the time between when this intervention happens and when the credit can be retired? Even that is not necessarily uh, certain. And it's highly dependent on, um, let's take ocean, enhanced alkalinity, for example. Uh, It's highly dependent on the local environment, the currents, the weather, uh, a complex set of equations you need to model between air, gas, sea exchange. Ultimately, uh, and again, I believe that if we want to scale really quickly, this needs to be a a business that people can make money because that's how you get uh, investment into it. That's how you unlock pools of capital so that you can build the infrastructure. And that's why infrastructure works, because there are people out there that don't ever pick up a shovel, but are in the infrastructure space and they're making money. So... The, the biggest issue with these open systems, not that we'll never do them, but that today, right now, the MRV on them is so uncertain. The regulatory permissions and permits are so murky that I have a hard time thinking about commercializing a carbon credit in a way that is cost effective. Because maybe you're right, it's cheap from the perspective of actually doing the thing and it's scalable from the perspective of it being an open system. But a lot of people don't think about what the costs are in MRV in insurance and in, in making sure that those credits actually persist and making sure that there's a pool of credit capital that you can draw upon if they fail. That added complexity of ongoing costs that a lot of folks don't think about um, actually make it much more difficult for a project developer to make a business case and make it less investable and bankable to the project investors that we are looking to raise capital with.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So tell us why you focused on Quebec to launch and and you're bullish on Canada as a place to deploy carbon removal technologies.
1: Yeah, well, first Quebec because of the hydroelectricity grid, right? There is a ton of electricity that is actually curtailed every year. That they have yet to actually reach their full capacity. And in fact, they're drawing on and building more dams as we speak. And oftentimes, the increased um, precipitation rate, uh, oftentimes due to global warming, actually allows for a greater capacity for hydroelectricity to produce power. Um, and so the, we have like a 98% green electricity grid in Quebec. And to do carbon removal responsibly, to do it well, and cost-effectively, you need storage and you need renewables. Again, that wall that many of these companies, I think, are hitting over and over and over again. And in Quebec, you have the renewables. There are lots of potential for storage in terms of mafic and ultra-mafic rock where you could do uh, in-situ mineralization. There are some deep saline aquifer storage, lower capacity than out west, but they exist in the St. Lawrence lowlands. So there is storage in Quebec and there's, it's just not as well understood or known and there is certainly an abundance of clean electricity. Uh, in Alberta, it's almost the opposite. We have, you can go blindfold and drill a hole anywhere in uh, the Albertan prairie, and then you could uh, hit storage capacity. And it's everywhere. We could literally reverse, as I said earlier, every historical mission that humanity has ever put into the atmosphere and stick it in uh, the west of Canada. So we have that, but we don't necessarily have the renewables. Um, in the grand scheme of things, you know, you can imagine, again, we're talking about like visionary stuff. You can imagine um, Deep Sky being an oil and gas company in reverse. And what, is it, what do energy companies and oil and gas companies do right now? There's an existing pipeline that runs west to east that transports natural gas to heat our homes in the wintertime. Imagine a world where we reverse that flow and are using the renewables in the east in Quebec or the nuclear capacity that's coming online in Ontario to capture carbon dioxide from the air. And then you use an existing pipeline that used to transport fossil fuels to now bring it back to the West where we could put it back where we found it. So there are all of these intrinsic reasons geologically and geographically uh, and from an, a, a natural uh, resource perspective that make Canada great. And then the policies as well. So in Canada, we have the CCUS Investment Tax Credit, which for direct air capture is a 60% tax rebate on all capex. So that's money today. That's not money that is at risk in the future. That if you don't produce, like in the, a lot of people talk about the 45Q, um, the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, which is a massive game changer for sure. But it's a credit on every time that you remove. And so if you're down for operations, if you're not utilizing it as much as you think you're going to, if, uh, you know, another government comes into play in a few years from now and reverses the policy or lowers the amount, that really messes up your amortization and your financial model into the future as a project investor so what I, what I actually think is so powerful about the Canadian investment tax credit is that it's a reduction of capEx that you can count today and that you have certainty around uh, so for all of these reasons, you know and then I'll, I didn't even mention, but the labor force you know we have this incredible labor force in the west that the oil and gas sector and all of these people know how to move fluids, know how to deal with energy and heat transfer. We have already one of the world's most advanced labor forces to do carbon removals. We just have to activate them.
0: Yeah, I would co-sign on all of those strengths. I mean, it it is really well set up to do carbon removal well, and especially I think the point on the investment tax credit is an important one. I think, um, I think that a lot of people. We'll, we'll spend some time next year actually educating more people about the power of this investment tax credit to drive more direct air capture uh, projects into Canada and seeing where there are opportunities, of course, to, to improve and expand on that. Now, you've had, you've had the great luck, I think, to visit a number of really cool CDR companies across the U.S. and Europe. What are some of the innovations in carbon removal broadly that get you most excited?
1: Oh, it's such a good question. I mean... You know, it's so fun visiting these companies because they're so uh, creative and unique in the way that they tackle things. Like finding um, proxies in other industries, literally buying old equipment, bringing it down, tearing it down, building it back up, and then trying to figure things out. It's just, I love it. That's just that's the creative energy that we need if we're going to solve for these problems. So a couple of like broad-based advancements that I think are really exciting. Um, the first is electrochemical approaches to carbon dioxide removal. One of the big issues, and everyone says, you know, it's very energy intensive today for traditional scaled approaches, which is true. And a lot of that is because of the heat required to either calcine rock or, or to calcine chemical loops or, or to produce high temperature heat and steam uh, for um, a solid sorbent regeneration. But um, we're seeing more and more companies that are using other methods of regeneration be- besides heat. So whether it's electrochemical or, or there are some that are doing moisture swing absorption, um, and I think it's really exciting. You know, the creativity on the chemistry, where we can think about using other things than heat to drive the capture and regeneration. To me, that's the that's the most exciting part.
0: Yeah, that gets around a massive bottleneck for something like direct air capture. And the more we can invest in those technologies and address some of the supply chain challenges that some of that stuff is going to have. I think that's going to be important. Um, so it's, it's great to see that there's more innovation uh, happening in that area. What can you tell us about your recent partnership with Isometric and how you're kind of approaching MRV as relates to, to all of these new technologies that you're going to be testing out?
1: Yeah, no, it's great. So Deep Sky, and again, this is built into our DNA because of our, our co-founders, is extremely uh, data-oriented um, and focused on what customers want. And ultimately, customers are going to need assurity. They're going to need transparency. And they want to understand that what they pay for is what they get. So at the highest level, MRV is absolutely necessary if you want to do CDR responsibly. It it's not something that you can think of as an afterthought. It's something that you need to incorporate in your project development from the very beginning. Um, we looked around and we're trying to understand that space. And when we met Isometric, we felt that there. Um, so for, for your listeners out there, for those who don't know, Isometric uh, is a carbon removals-focused registry that also develops protocols for new technologies in the carbon removal space, publishes them online for uh, public consultation for people to look at, and then helps to facilitate um, the sort of third-party verification and audit. Um, they're, they're relatively new in the space, uh, but they're they've been doing some great work. And so our partnership with them is we committed to work together on helping to develop these direct air capture protocols um, specifically. And then, of course, also direct ocean capture as part of a partnership to help bring the the most amount of transparency, robustness, et cetera, to the space. Now, of course, um, there's lots of questions around the MRV space, and it's a bit confusing because each of those three things can be different, right? Well, the monitoring and measurement, I mean, we can buy sensors to do that. So that's not necessarily a a, a big thing. But reporting and verification, how do you do that? How do you do it responsibly? How do you do that for the government, right? In order to qualify for the CCUS ITC, uh, I don't know if many people have actually looked at the details. I've read it. I've looked at the um, Ways and Means uh, Act. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, you're going to need to get a feed study. The Natural Resources Canada is going to have to uh, adjudicate and, and look at. Uh, you have to ensure that your project runs for over 20 years. You have to make sure that an MRV protocol is placed. It has to be ISO certified. Like all of these things are so important. And, and so that's why well, we've partnered with Isometric to help develop this DAC protocol. Uh, why we think just like they are, you know, one of these players in the space that are really helping to uh, advance and build tools that bring everyone along rather than just one company. We think that's the same for Deep Sky. So there was lots of uh, alignment and it made a lot of sense for us to do it.
0: Yeah, it's exciting to see what they're gonna be able to, to to develop here and how that helps uh, move the industry forward in terms of some of these protocols uh, and and MRV systems that are gonna be necessary in order to, to scale more of these technologies. What do you see as some of the largest kind of opportunities and challenges to large scale deployment? So when you think beyond Deep Sky Alpha to one, two, and beyond, uh, You know, what are you excited about? But what keeps you up at night?
1: Both of the things that are both a challenge and an opportunity is community stakeholder engagement and responsible development in the places that we want to operate. This cannot be an afterthought. It has to be something that we do genuinely and in partnership with the communities where we operate. We have been telling everyone that will listen that carbon removals is an economic boost to a community, which is 100% true. But in order for that to happen, you have to ensure that the community shares with that ec- economic upside and is a part of that journey from the very beginning. There have been so many projects that have been derailed or canceled or have not reached FID uh, because they did not engage with the community fully. Uh, and this is particularly true in places that are more rural, where you would expect to see lots of storage capacity. And where Deep Sky wants to develop because we want to minimize the cost of transportation and the logistics of transportation. So we want to deploy a capture right on top of storage. So, the thing that, again, this is an opportunity as much as it is a challenge. The thing that um, I'm really thinking about more and more um, on deployment large scale uh, is how do we engage these communities, particularly indigenous communities, and how do we develop a partnership uh, with indigenous communities uh, to 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 help reverse the damage, right? Like if, if you were living somewhere that you were responsible for, that you had a connection to the land for literally millennia and there were people that came into your, your land uh, and then extracted resources from you and took everything that they could and did so not with goodwill to then come back and say, Hey, actually we want to clean up the mess we made and we want you to be a part of that. Like there's so much skepticism there. Right. And I, I, Completely and fully understand it. So, I think that's something that we need to, as Deep Sky uh, and as an industry, make sure that we do so and set the standard for responsible development of infrastructure projects in collaboration partnership with communities. Uh, the second thing that really uh, keeps me up at night is manufacturing. Very quickly, we are going to need to build hundreds or thousands of these units. Uh very quickly, as I said earlier, we 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 spoke about modularity. We need to mass manufacture these things. And it takes time to build those facilities. It takes time to build a gigafactory. And to me, like just the scale and the scope uh, of what we need to accomplish and what we need to do, it, you know, that that does keep me up at night, but it also excites me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, those points are are really important. And the one around community engagement is one that we think about a lot as well. It's just so critical that communities invite carbon removal projects in, that they want to have a stake, that they're excited about the opportunity for carbon removal in their communities because we did that front-end work that's going to be necessary in order to build that trust. Um, What policies or actions are you looking to kind of see from the Canadian government, because it looks like this is where you're going to be operating here in Canada, what policies and actions are you hoping to see from the Canadian government to help develop and scale the carbon removal technologies that you're working with as rapidly and as responsibly as possible.
1: Totally. Um, and one quick comment here before I dive into the answering your question. A lot of people ask us, you know, you're based in Canada. Are you going to expand anytime soon? And uh, I we spoke about why Canada is the best place in the world to develop CDR, and I truly fundamentally believe that. But um, Deep Sky has no ambitions to expand outside of Canada in the short to medium term, and I'll tell you why. Because Project development is such a local and very specific to a regional location skill set. If I were to go to Europe, if I were to go to the UK and say, hey, I'm going to go build a project and I don't know the the politics, I don't know the culture, I don't know the people, I don't know the big players, I haven't built a career of being a thought leader in that space, in that area, good luck, right? Right. And so this is why I don't think that Deep Sky, and it's so different from what venture capital or what people think about in the CR space of you know scaling globally, being everywhere, always, all at once. No, Deep Sky actually thinks that we are our, our pathway to growth and our moat ultimately, from a, if you want to talk about competition, even though I don't believe we're going to have any competition for a very long time because there's more than enough CO2 to go around. But our moat, so to speak, is that we are unabashedly and proudly Canadian. And we're going to stay in Canada and we're going to work with Canada and we're going to build this industry in Canada. Uh, and that leads to the answer to your question, what can Canadian governments and policies do um, to help us and help the country really become a world leader in this space? Uh, I can be as very specific as possible, which is, for example, please allow for retroactivity to Quebec while they pass their subsurface uh, regulatory regime. Um, as an example, so that we can get access to the CCOS ITC right now. Or I can be as broad as possible, which is, um, please, can we think about launching pilot procurement projects, uh, just like the DOE National Labs have done in the states, where they've framed it as you know a thirty-five million dollar prize, but in reality it is a procurement of a credit, and, you know, setting the precedent for the Canadian government or any level of government to say we're actually going to purchase carbon removals is a huge precedent to make. And I'd say this to not just the federal government, but to municipalities, to provinces, to um, indigenous nations. You know, if you set aside even just a little bit amount of money to say that we are going to purchase carbon removals, you you are setting a precedent. And it is so important. And it will will really position us to be a leader in the world. So um, that's another huge, big ask. But there are, are, are so many different policies along the pathway. Um, on on labor, on training? Are there policies that we can uh, enact to allow for uh, a, a greater upskill in locations where we're going to need it to, to actually build these things and retraining programs? On uh, science and, uh, and, and research and, uh, and development, yeah, you, you know, a lot of, of folks are, are, are talking about targeted programs, etc. Uh, how do we build more uh, challenges and prizes? You've spoken about that as well. Those are wonderful ideas and we should absolutely think about doing that too. And then uh, actual internal policies. How can the government you know, use carbon removals to decarbonize their own operations? You know, we went to go speak to the federal government and the Center for Greening Government, and their entire mandate is how do they get the government to be net zero. The largest emissions that they have to deal with, some of the largest emissions they have to deal with, are those which are very difficult to electrify and hard to abate. Fuel consumption, military operations. Like So imagine if the government says, you know what? We're going to address these hard-to-abate emissions with carbon removals, and we're going to do that today. So, anyway, there are so many different policies that I think that could be enacted, and, uh, and and again, in a way that is responsible. Not to say that we should be limiting or or that we should get rid of permitting and and not do environmental assessments. These things are so important, but we should be looking for ways to streamline and accelerate. All of that as quickly as possible, not just for carbon removal, but for all of the clean technologies and infrastructure projects that we need to build to create a more sustainable Canada. That is really key.
0: Yeah, I think think a lot of what you said there makes a ton of sense, and it maps really neatly to kind of how we imagine what this needs to look like. The demand signal from government can be a game changer. And we've talked to the government about this. We think it is extremely important that Canada is uh, setting that demand signal, even at a small scale to start up with, that grows over time, that can be really, really powerful for the carbon removal sector. Then we want to accelerate technology supply, and that's through uh, support for R&D and grants, innovation challenges. That's a big one for us, so that more of these companies and more carbon removal solutions are procurement ready or compliance market ready, are able to find more ways to attract capital in order to scale, and then finally we need to get really clear on what does rapid but responsible scale up of carbon removal look like. And that's when we start to engage more at the provincial level, subnational level, but also the federal level Then thinking about what it's going to take to build the industry that we want to see in Canada and around the world. That's the other thing that we, we need to talk about more in Canada is how can we be a blueprint for how this is done in Deep Sky in particular, right? How can we be a blueprint for how this is done uh, all around the world? That That multiplies our potential impact. So a lot of really exciting stuff happening on the policy front and all built upon, by the way, the investment tax credit that we talked about, carbon removal featuring very heavily in Canada's carbon management strategy, Environment and Climate Change Canada is developing its own direct air capture protocol that might be the first national endorsed uh, and developed uh, direct air capture protocol depending on when it's officially released. So you've got all of this great stuff on top of the strengths that you mentioned earlier in the podcast that Canada brings to the table. And if we can move the needle on a few more of these policies, I think we can um, really hit the flywheel and and make some really quick progress around carbon removal in Canada. So it's an exciting time to be here and working on this problem. And we want to see more companies, by the way, a lot of the people listening to this are not going to be in Canada. We want to see more projects launched here in Canada. We want more carbon removal companies and technology developers to reach out to you and, and others uh, to, to set up projects across the country because of, of the vast potential that we see here. Um, last question, what's in store for you in 2024 and how can folks learn more about what you're doing?
1: Yeah, it's you know when I think about what we've been able to accomplish over the last four months, like I, I don't even know where we're going to be in a year from now. And I think that's the most exciting part, but I'll tell you what we have planned um, we're going to be announcing, you know, a buyer syndicate for the credits that we generate from Alpha over the next 10 years. So that's going to be really exciting to show final like market validation, because ultimately, in order to be investable, you have to show that there's a revenue source. And so I'm I'm really looking forward to, to you know, being able to announce and, and, and close deals on revenue. Um, the next thing is we're going to actually be building and operating these things in the summer, like September, we're accepting the first deliveries. From our uh, partners of their prototype units or for the pilot units uh, in September of this year, so you know, we you know site selection is uh, something that keep that's actually you know in the short term something that really keeps me up at night. So I'm really excited to be able to announce where we're actually going to finally put these things like for, like to the the square meter. Um, so that's something that's super exciting. All of the work that we're doing and all of the companies that we're going to be working with and, and uh, all the partners that we want to help them, you know and Is this something that Damien, our CEO, has said time and time again to all the partners that we work with. You know, we are your customer. And if you're looking to raise capital, we aren't going to go pitch a venture capitalist on your behalf. We will be your biggest cheerleader because our success is your success. We don't exist if there aren't technology developers that are developing technology. So I'm super excited to meet more technology developers and bring them to Canada. And then finally, you know, I'm just really excited about. The, the team that we're building and the people that are coming forward and saying that they want to work with us uh, to make this vision a reality. Uh, and a, a little plug, if uh, any of your listeners are out there and they're interested in making an impact, please reach out to me. Um, we are looking for the best and the brightest and the most driven and the most excited people to work in this space and we would love to work with you. So please, please do that.
0: Wonderful. Thanks so much, Phil. I love the uh, the urgency and entrepreneurship that's brought to the table here from Deep Sky on scaling carbon removal. We need to see more of it. We need to see more of it in order to reach our goals. And we know we are strong believers at Carbon Removal Canada that we just need to build. We need to start building the carbon removal capacity now. Thank you so much for what you're doing and thanks for the time today. Thank you. The work that you're doing
1: to develop this industry in Canada, to be the the voice to government officials, to policy makers, to industry is so important. The, actually, another thing I'm super excited about is that you exist and that you're here. You know, like that's a sign of a, a market and an industry maturing. Is when you start to go from just startups out of labs to having organizations like yours, to having organizations like ours emerging and saying, "Okay, we have to make this thing work." So, thank you for letting me be on this podcast, but also for all the work that you do and all the work that you know we're doing together, but that, that you're leading on to help make this industry. Canada, and ultimately the world.
0: Thanks so much, Phil. It's, it's a privilege to be part of the ecosystem. Thanks so much.